You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations caged in all the homes. Hey, we're here with the first episode of our second season of The Lit Review. I'm Monica Trinidad. And I'm Paige May. And today we're talking about the book, The Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago by and with Daniel Hertz. Before we introduce Daniel, let's set the stage for Lincoln Park today um, for our non-Chicago-based listeners. So Lincoln Park is a Chicago neighborhood on the north side bordered um, on the north by diversity, on the west by Chicago River, on the south by North Avenue, and on the east by Lake Michigan. So when I think of Lincoln Park, I think about DePaul University, lots of white people, and uh, that it used to be a Puerto Rican community before it was gentrified. So Paige, what about you? So I think, when I think of Lincoln Park today, I definitely think of something pretty similar. Uh, lots and lots of white people, very expensive restaurants and stores. It's not a place I go to hang out. Uh, and then really quiet residential streets with really big houses that have fancy security systems. Uh, so today though, we're gonna be learning more about how Lincoln Park came to be as we know it. And we're here with, as we mentioned, Daniel K. Hertz, who is author of the new release. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, my name is Daniel K. Hertz. I live in Chicago. I think the thing that sort of unites the things that I do or that I hope unites it is I learn things about Chicago. I like sometimes form opinions about them and then I try to share them with people. That sort of incorporates what I do at work where I focus on like state and local budget policy and then outside writing projects like the book here. I think it's impossible to live in Chicago without without being sort of bombarded by questions that the environment sort of gives you and the most basic level why is it like this mm-hmm. um, for both good and for for ill and are you were you born and raised in Chicago or were you yeah yeah okay. um, I I was born actually I was when when I was when I was born my parents lived in what's now Roscoe Village um, sort of at the the edge of, of what was then gentrification in like the late 80s um, and then most of my childhood I was in Albany Park. Um, and then we moved to West Rogers Park, to Madison, Wisconsin, and to South Evanston over the next couple of years. You've been all over the spectrum of Chicago. I actually, I was born and raised in South Chicago, like far south, like border of Indiana, mm-hmm. east side. And now where we're at right now is Rogers Park, almost Evanston. I, I'm a transplant, so I'm originally from Real Vermont. And when I first came to Chicago, I lived in Logan Square, uh, right off of the blue line in that neighborhood. Even in the eight years I've been here, it's changed a lot. Um, I lived in Bucktown for a minute, uh, many years in Rogers Park, and then now I live in Washington Park um, on Chicago's south side, which is, as I've been reading about your book, uh, have noticed a lot of similarities with what's going on, and I'm really excited to hear from you and also learn more about how people resisted and what lessons we can learn from that resistance. So, Daniel, tell us, what led you to write this book? 
So, you know, I've been reading, I think when, you know, when I was in high school, I picked up a copy of um, Arnold Hirsch's book, Making the Second Ghetto, which is one of the classics of, you know, of how sort of the borders of segregation in Chicago came to be the way they are in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and, you know, those were questions that I had started to ask. So when I was in seventh grade, I started going to Whitney Young uh, Magnet High School on the West Side. That was the first time that I had started making friends from every neighborhood in the city pretty much because because it was a magnet school it was taking kids from all over the city and I you know would visit them in their homes one of the s- first things you notice when you start traveling around the city for the first time is different neighborhoods look really really different making the second ghetto was one of the first books I, I really read that sort of dove into that um, but but I you know read many many more um, sort of Chicago history books in the many years since I was in high school. A couple years ago I started thinking about well all right that's one side of the story of this incredibly bifurcated city. The other side of that story is the north side, right, on these hyper-invested, you know, disproportionately white neighborhoods like Lincoln Park. I said, well, you know, there's, I haven't seen nearly as much history written about this, right? So then about maybe two years ago, I picked up a book called The Invention of Brownstone Brooklyn, which I cannot recommend strongly enough. It is just a masterful history of sort of the early gentrification of Brownstone Brooklyn, of places like Park Slope and Brooklyn Heights and all of that, Cobble Hill, um, and I would, you know, that was sort of like, okay, I have to find the version of this book that's about Chicago. And I basically concluded there really wasn't one. There was a lot. There was a lot of really fantastic work that had been done about pieces of that story, and particularly about um, the Puerto Rican experience in you know, Lincoln Park. Can you tell us a little bit more before we dive in uh, about Lincoln Park and what it is today? Uh, we gave our impressions, but I think you probably have a more <laughs> uh, data-centric idea of what's going on there now. Yeah, it's funny, you know, honestly, I I never spent any time in Lincoln Park either for the sort of same reasons that you were, you know, it's a bunch of expensive stuff and DePaul students and like, you know, what do I have to do there? So I've gotten to know the neighborhood as it exists today much better since I started writing the book. It's it's um, 80 to 85% white, right, in a city that's 30 or less percent. It's, you know, median household income is twice the city average, and in pockets, it's much higher than that. It's essentially the closest in neighborhood on the north side, right? So it has uh, really good access to downtown via public transit, it, uh, right on the lake, right with the zoo and the lakefront park. And so in many, you know, in many ways, it's, you know, it's an idyllic neighborhood in a lot of ways, but, in, you know, it's also one that has become off limits for a lot of people, especially, you know, people of color, people of more modest economic means, um, because it's become so expensive to live in. So when you say off limits, let's expand on that. What is your definition of gentrification, right? Because I, I think we hear a lot about different neighborhoods in Chicago and the ways that they're being changed by building new condos and uh, affordable housing disappearing, right? Becoming off limits to certain people. We name that as gentrification. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is your definition of it? And then also like, what's the difference between gentrification and urban renewal? Because I hear those sort of like used interchangeably, but there's got to be a difference. Is there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I should be able to answer this really well because both of those words are in my subtitle. Um, but, you know, funnily, so, so I mean, the easy one, from my perspective, is, is urban renewal. And, and urban renewal, the way I'm using it, means something very specific, which is the sort of programs that the federal government, and, and to some extent the state governments, but really the federal government created in the 30s, 40s, 50s, into the 60s that were designed to, in the minds of the people who designed them, you know, breathe life back into um, inner city neighborhoods around the country by 
often sweeping aside everything that had been there physically and starting over. So there was a sort of ideology that, and which a lot of which, by the way, was sort of incubated at the University of Chicago um, by the sociology department there. Um, but there was this ideology that basically, you know, the, the problems of the inner city, the, the the poverty, the sort of health issues, the crime was sort of inherent in the like very nature of older urban areas. So, you know, having apartment buildings, having buildings built right up to the street, um, having a sort of grid street system at all, right? And so there was a sort of push to knock everything down over a, a you know, series of whole blocks, right? And then rebuild it from scratch on a totally different planning design paradigm, right? And so I think maybe one of the, the best places, the most dramatic places to see that in Chicago is um, the near south side, uh, Lake uh, Lake Meadows and, and Prairie Shores in Bronzeville, where you have um, a sort of early urban renewal project where they tore down this like old, very old, very dense neighborhood that at the time was basically entirely black and replaced it with you know, I think a total of like 12 massive high rises um, in sort of essentially a campus, right? There's no there's no regular street grid. Um, sometimes it was housing, sometimes it was public housing, sometimes it was highways, sometimes it was parks, right? But sort of sweeping aside the old stuff and, and replacing it. Gentrification has such a wide variety of meanings for, for, for different people that honestly, you know, apart from being in the subtitle, because I think, you know, almost anybody would look at what happened to Lincoln Park and say, yeah, that's gentrification. I really tried to avoid using the word because um, in the rest of the book, because it, it's, it, I didn't want to spend, I didn't want to do the work to sort of convince people, hey, no, this is what it means, right? Not what you think it means, this is what it means. You know, I wasn't really interested in having that fight over the definition. I think at one point, I think in the introduction, I say, you know, that I, the sense in which I use it is basically an, uh, an influx of middle class to upper middle class people who are usually white, who don't really have social ties to the existing residents is, is sort of the sense in which I use it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily fight with somebody who had a different definition, right? I, I think there's so many different facets of it, cultural, economic, um, that I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to pin down a definition of, of gentrification in the way that, at least in this book, in this context, I would try to pin down a definition of urban renewal. Do you find inherent to your definition that then is a displacement, though, of the folks that are there? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's really interesting because on the one hand... I, I think some kind of displacement, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily have to be physical. So I think often, right, what, what it means for sort of middle class people, upper middle class people to be moving into an area, right, is they can outbid basically the existing lower income people for housing, right? They can just say, hey, we'll, we'll pay more for this, so it's ours. Can you say that like a public housing co neighborhood has been gentrified um, or, or, or that the, the people in, say, a public housing complex are, are um, in some ways impacted negatively, victims of, of gentrification. And I think you can, and I, even though they're not displaced, obviously because the you know, public housing rents don't go up when market rents go up. It's all, um, and, I, and I think that points to a cultural or sort of communal, communitarian idea about what displacement is, right? And that you know, when people with sort of greater social power and economic power to sort of reshape what like the the sense of community is in a neighborhood come in then there can be a displacement of community even if it doesn't mean that it's displacement of individuals and I think that's yeah. actually a, like a really big part of what people react to mm -hmm. about gentrification so maybe even like students 
Yeah. Like students moving into a neighborhood, right? I mean, I'm, right. I'm thinking about like when I, I, I was a UIC student and mm-hmm. I moved to Pilsen in 2006. Uh, it was affordable and I, you know, and it, I, it was close to campus and so I moved in and, but I, you know, taught, the landlord was sort of saying stuff like, oh, I, you know, I, I'm glad you students moved in because I, I don't want any more families here. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't want like, and so like that, like even though I identify as like brown and, you know, like working class, like at the time working class, like I still felt like I was part of the problem, right? I was part mm-hmm. of that, that problem of, of, of students sort of moving in to a neighborhood that is, um, that landlords like want them to move in yeah. right like, because it's like I don't yeah so I, I just think I think about like how students have that impact and like how they don't even know about it sometimes like when you came from you know Vermont and like moved to Logan Square right it's like you, but you had no idea what that like history of that neighborhood was right and then that's intentional yeah you know yeah I'm also thinking about just the the cha- shift in, in criminalization that happens, right? Where mm-hmm. like we're in a phase where there's a lot growing amount of police in the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, still, a lot of those young people that grew up there are there, but it, it, you know, uh, just this summer we saw a huge increase in, in police. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into your book, though. Tell us more about what you cover and the story that you're trying to tell. So the book begins actually uh, in 1917. Um, with these two uh, students at the speaking of students, these two <laughs> students at the uh, the School of the Art Institute, who basically storm out in a protest, or maybe they're expelled. It's sort of not clear in the historical record. One of them goes on to be uh, a, a successful commercial artist, a guy named Edgar Miller, who has moved here from Idaho. And this other guy, who's a sort of Russian Jewish immigrant from Maxwell Street, basically takes over his family business, selling clothes, um, and and uh, becomes sort of an unlikely success. Gets a bunch of money and goes to Paris to to be a bohemian, basically. And then while he's in Paris, he he sort of falls in love with these like artist communes that that exist there in the twenties. Um, and he comes back to Chicago and he basically decides, I want to build that in Chicago. Um, very explicitly, he's like, I'm building like Montmartre in Chicago. Um, and he ends up buying a couple properties in what's now considered the Old Town Triangle, uh, although that name didn't exist at the time. Uh, and he hires his friend, Edgar Miller, to like completely sort of build, rebuild them from the ground up as artist studios. Um, and so I sort of start with that as, and, and the reason they do that, the reason they do it there is it's on the edge of, it's, it's just outside the Gold Coast where a lot of their sort of patrons live. And, and you know, close to downtown, close to the lake, there's these historic buildings, but it's this working class neighborhood that's very cheap for them to buy property in. And I sort of say, well, this is like, in a way, you can say these properties are like the beginning of gentrification in Lincoln Park. The Old Town Triangle, for people who don't know, is like a sort of sub-neighborhood of Lincoln Park in the southeast corner. So it sort of begins with that, and then it follows those uh, those those people, and then the people who are sort of attracted to the, the community that they're building, which includes both more artists, but also bankers and, and salespeople who sort of want to live a you know bohemian life. Um, and then increasingly just sort of a wider array of professional white collar workers who want to live close to downtown, uh, who, you know, all their friends are moving out to the suburbs because this is now the 1930s or 40s, right? And all the middle class white people are moving to the suburbs. But they sort of insist that, no, we can live in the inner city and we can sort of have all the privileges of a new white flight suburb, but we can also have a 15 minute commute to work and we can live in this historic neighborhood. Um, And so it sort of follows the neighborhood organizations that they build 
uh, and the lobbying and the work that they do to transform Lincoln Park into something that they, to sort of their vision of a perfect neighborhood. And then, of course, also begins to track, especially starting in the late 50s and 60s, the resistance to their movement that they that they build, which comes in a couple different waves, but by the people who feel sort of threatened or, or displaced by what um, what the gentrifiers, or I call them rehabbers, what the rehabbers are doing. Can you say more about like what that resistance looked like? Yeah, so in the book I sort of describe it as like three waves. So the, um, although maybe we should actually start with like the pre-wave. So, you know, in the 50s, eventually they, they end up getting an urban renewal program in the, in the neighborhood. They end up getting a, a sort of federal federal program. But before they do that, they don't get that till the 60s. Before they do that during the 50s, they have this thing called the, the strict enforcement campaign, which basically involves going around identifying buildings that sort of don't meet the zoning code. And often that's because basically, you know, three flats, three unit buildings had been cut up into six unit buildings, um, smaller units, cheaper units for, for sort of working class people. And that wasn't legal most of the time. And so basically these, these sort of rehabbers would go around, find these buildings, and then sue the landlords to have half the people evicted and have them reconverted into, you know, the larger apartments, right? There was some resistance to that, but it tended to be really sporadic. Part of the thing about sort of picking, you know, one building here and one building there was you could you you know they sort of couldn't get a, a bunch of people all at once to come and fight them that starts happening when they do get the urban renewal program because all of a sudden with this urban renewal program they're planning on tearing down entire streets at a time right entire blocks of, of buildings and so you know those neighbors who know each other right have ex existing relationships form these organizations to try to stop them and they go to sort of public meetings about it they petition the city council and the department of urban renewal and say please don't tear down our homes right they end up losing the demolition areas that the rehabbers first sort of imagine are basically exactly what gets torn down. Those the, That first wave of resistance is, is essentially displaced out of the neighborhood pretty quickly. The second wave of resistance actually comes from within these sort of rehabber organizations, from these middle class people who, you know, all, most of these people self-identify as liberal. They self-identify as, as progressive. Um, they're in favor of integration. They want the neighborhood to remain mixed income and, and to the extent that it's mixed race, mixed race. Um, and so some of them actually say, hey, you know, they, by the time that sort of urban renewal program is getting into kicking into gear, they're saying, hey, this is actually not, this is not what we said we wanted to do. And so there's the sort of actually um, fight within the organization where the sort of um, alternative slate of candidates starts running for, for for offices within these organizations. But they also lose. It turns out most people are not sympathetic or not, not sympathetic enough to, to sort of support that. And then the last, the final wave of, of resistance comes from, um, is sort of spearheaded partly by the sort of most radical people within those organizations who start leaving and forming their own groups, but then is really driven by this group, the Young Lords Organization, which is uh, started by um, a man named Chacha Jimenez, who is uh, basically a, a teenager who's the head of this Puerto Rican street gang, the Young Lords, and decides to re-found it on the model of the Black Panthers and uh, as a sort of radical political group. And one of their first targets is stopping urban renewal. And they're sort of the first group who are willing to really get in the faces of urban renewal officials, of the rehabber groups. You know, they're willing to disrupt meetings. They're willing to, um, you know, do things that previous iteration, previous sort of movements of resistance, which has been led by, you know, 
shopkeepers and um, you know uh, reverends um, were sort of not tactics they were not willing to take, and they have the most success in getting attention to the issue, in convincing people that that the the sort of rehabbers don't have the moral authority to lead the neighborhood in the way that they had been leading the neighborhood, but ultimately. Um, Ultimately, they're, they're sort of quashed by um, reaction from both the more, sort of more conservative members in Lincoln Park um, and also sort of city government officials. The last sort of scene in the book is the young lords try to take over, uh, they bid for redevelopment of an urban renewal parcel. And they say, we are going to, we hired an architect, we're going to like build affordable housing on this parcel that's been cleared. Um, and they almost win. They actually, the, the, the president of the main rehabber organization resigns, takes a, takes a post at the sort of official board that um, that's voting on who's going to get the bid, who's going to get the contract, votes for the Young Lords, um, and then the city council overturns that vote and says, no, 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 we're going to give it to the sort of more more standard, um, standard contractor. Wow. And I can't even imagine, I mean, I can't imagine, but all of the different struggles of resistance that are happening simultaneously with the young lords mm -hmm. you know right like because we know about the rainbow coalition right so we know about like the black panthers and, and and the young patriots and did you explore any of like that outside sort of support from these other groups yeah i mean it certainly came up a lot in the research i was doing you know unfortunately it's a short book yeah. um and I, I there's a lot of stuff i didn't get to explore as much as i wish i had you which know, is I, sort of my my yeah. other question was like what it, what was left out that you wish you could have oh, like man. included i know there's could probably whole, so much yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's certainly part of it because you know the young lords were super tied into the black panthers um yeah, the, the Young Patriots, which was a sort of radical group of white Appalachians, because uh, there was a large Appalachian community that had moved to Chicago in the 50s. Um, and, you know, they also had relationships, although not necessarily good relationships, with groups like SDS, um, who, you know, came to, you know, so in 1968, right, Chicago has the, um, the Democratic National Convention, which turns into the sort of bloody melee as the police sort of attack these anti-Vietnam anti protesters and other protesters. Um, and that happens, a lot of that happens like in Lincoln Park, right in their backyard. Um, and interestingly enough, the young lords and the sort of people that they're working with in Lincoln Park are basically telling these people who have come from all over the country to, to protest, these radicals, stay out. We don't want you. You're, you're not sort of rooted in what we're doing. You're not connected to what our sort of strategy and tactics are. Like, we don't, we're not really interested. Meanwhile, the rehabbers, these middle class people, vote to uh, officially ask the, the Chicago Police Department to allow these radicals from outside the city to sleep in Lincoln Park overnight and not to bother them because they, even as late as 1968, are still sort of self-identifying as these progressive people, right? <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, I mean, the, 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 the tangle of stuff yeah. going on is really weird and interesting. So that, yeah, I mean, that's just one, one tiny piece of what I wish could have been, we could have dug into more yeah, in the book. It seems like there's this pattern of gentrification, whatever you mean by that, where a lot of the first wave is artists um, and art museums and yeah, and like young people maybe marginalized in other ways mm -hmm. uh, than how the community they're moving into identifies. And I, I don't, uh, yeah, and then, and they oftentimes like 
see themselves as sort of like for the people in some way. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the one of the points I tried to make in the book is that I think I think the sort of cycle of gentrification that we see starting in the 30s with Saul Kogan and Edgar Miller, the uh, Art Institute students, and continuing up very much through today, is that the, the, the sort of, you know, the tip of the spear, in a sense, is people who... Um, are sort of on the fringes of affluent society, um, moving into neighborhoods that are physically on the fringes of affluent neighborhoods, right? Um, and so, you know, a lot of times that means people who are from middle-class backgrounds, um, who maybe have a four-year college degree, who clearly, you know, who have a family, so some family wealth, and not necessarily a lot of family wealth, but, a, you know, middle-class family background, but who are not actually making a lot of income, right? And so they need cheap rent because they don't actually have a lot to spend, but they're sort of socially connected to this world, uh, to the sort of middle-class life that's happening in places like, you know, today Lincoln Park in the 1930s, the Gold Coast. And so, you know, they want to be close to that world. And so they basically find, you know, what is the closest place they can live to that sphere that they can afford, right? And that that basically looks like the first wave of gentrification. You know, so, so on the one hand, it's the sort of like mechanical thing almost where like these people who are sort of at the early stage of their lives who may later be have middle class incomes but are, you know, not there yet are trying to sort of live as close to that world as they can. On the other hand, you have this sort of more sort of cultural thing going on where they sort of create this environment that people who do have more money are attracted to, right? And you totally see that in, you know, Logan Square or Pilsen, where these people are creating, you know, they have a lot of cultural capital, you could say, right? They, they're creating these things that, um, you know, restaurants or cocktail bars or art galleries or whatever that people who do have money want to go to. And so I think there is this sort of, this, this dynamic where, you know, people who are moving into the neighborhood essentially because it's the closest place to downtown that they can afford end up pulling in more middle-class people and sort of introducing them to the neighborhood and sort of putting it in their orbit, easing the next phase, which is, you know, people who are from middle-class backgrounds and have middle-class incomes who can then sort of push up prices. I mean, I'm thinking about spaces like the cafes and the galleries mm -hmm. where you come and then you leave, but it's this introduction, right? right? Is it significant that it was driven first by individuals, though, as opposed to like an institution buying up a lot of land and then trying to bring people to that area they've bought out? Yeah, I think that, man, I would love somebody to give a, a sort of a, a different example of a history of gentrification that is institutionally driven because I think a lot of people think of that as kind of like the de facto way that it happens. But I, I really think in Lincoln Park, it was, you know, to the extent you can say this, like a grassroots movement. It was, it, yeah, it was these individuals who, you know, and in the beginning, literally just a couple dozen, a couple hundred, you know, for, for years, who you know, decided that they wanted to make, they liked this neighborhood for a variety of reasons and they wanted to make it theirs. There were things they didn't like about it and so they wanted to fix those up and they were going to do that and they organized to do that. Um, but, you know, they didn't have the backing of really the mayor's office. One of the sort of interesting things is, so Lincoln Park successfully gets designated as a, uh, a urban renewal zone in 1956 and these people who have been organizing at this point for more than a decade to do that um, are really excited and they're sort of like, oh, great, we're going to get like all this money. We're going to be able to do all this stuff like in, you know, a couple of years. 
Mayor Daley doesn't even appoint anybody to the board that's supposed to oversee Lincoln Park's uh, urban renewal for like several years. They don't see a dollar for five or six years, um, basically because Daly, who was the mayor at the time, cared more about Hyde Park with the University of Chicago and the near west side with UIC. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it, it does matter, and it's maybe even more powerful for being such a sort of grassroots, bottom-up movement, because I think it's driven by this the sort of logic that makes sense to a lot of middle-class people about, you know, the charm that they see in the architecture, living close to the lake, having a short commute, right, which has turned out to be powerful enough to, to bring in, you know, at this point, I don't know, half a million people to the sort of zone of affluence that sort of has radiated out from Lincoln Park, right, as opposed to if it had just been sort of this top-down thing of, you know, some institution trying to create a little bubble around themselves, I don't think it could have been as powerful. I mean, look at the University of Chicago. I mean, the amount of the amount of effort that went into gentrifying Hyde Park, or, or, or that's not quite the right word for it in the 50s and 60s, but to sort of, you know, um, barricading Hyde Park or whatever. And most, I think, is way bigger than the amount of energy from the government side that, or from the institu- institutional side that went into Lincoln Park. But the, you know, Lincoln Park has, that effect has radiated across most of the north side at this point. In Hyde Park, you know, even 50 years after urban renewal, um, it's still pretty limited to Hyde Park itself and some of the, you know, sort of immediately surrounding neighborhoods. I, I'm often hearing about city <laughs> aldermen and, and sort of city efforts to better practice urban development, right, or city planning in ways that um, improve conditions but don't, without displacing people. But I, I hear that being referenced, but I don't, I'm wondering if, if um, what happened to Lincoln Park has been made easier by by policy or if we have preventative things in place and if so like what does that look like like if, if you're an organizer trying to target specific legislation what would you, what do you know of that w- would have made Lincoln Park maybe happen faster or more easily so we talked about the sort of the strict enforcement campaign right and one of the sort of big pushes by the the rehabbers was downzoning and reducing densities um, which looked a lot of the time, like taking older buildings that had, you know, either had been split up into more units than they than they were, or just, you know, were multi-unit buildings from the beginning, and trying to combine units, um, trying to combine apartments into larger units or combine them into single-family homes. So, you know, I think I think that's a that 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 sort of downzoning and the you know the laws that basically encourage that to happen um, basically are, are laws that that make multifamily, you know, apartment um, conversion or construction harder than sort of the reverse, taking apartments and turning them into larger homes. So that's that's one thing. I mean, another thing is, you know, in Lincoln Park, for all of the for all of the displacement, all the issues with the urban renewal program in Lincoln Park, it did actually build hundreds of units of affordable housing and public housing. That doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, the, the sort of the public housing construction has been ground to a halt. And that's, you know, largely about um, federal policy, right? Federal sort of removal of, of or withdrawing from the idea that the federal government should be putting money behind building public housing. Um, and then also, you know, we, Chicago hasn't had rent control since the 40s, since around World War II. But in the 90s, the state did pass a law making it illegal for 
local governments to create rent control, right? And so you can, you know, there's a movement now to try and, 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 and institute it. You can imagine that in the past, had it not been illegal, had, had the state not preempted it, um, you know, something like that might be in place. Um, so yeah, there's sort of a number of, of, of ways in which that's that's happened. So where's DePaul University in all of this? It's like that one like elephant in the room, right? Because I feel like when I, I mean, when I thought originally of gentrification in Lincoln Park, I was like, oh, it's DePaul. Damn you, DePaul. You know, because I'm always used to blaming institutions like University of Chicago and UIC. So like where, where's, what's DePaul's role in all of this? Yeah, so that's really interesting because I was also expecting DePaul to be really central to the story. And partly it's it's sort of, uh, you know, I chose to focus on the southwest corner of the neighborhood. And so DePaul is just on the sort of edge of that. Um, DePaul is sort of more in the center of Lincoln Park, the neighborhood. Um, but also, I mean, I think this also goes back to this really was a sort of grassroots thing. One of the sort of most telling moments to me in the book is... Um, so basically, the rehabbers are only able to get urban renewal money because they agree to do sort of the project piecemeal. Um, so originally, they wanted to do the whole neighborhood all at once, and the feds, the feds, and the city are basically like, "No, we're not just we're not going to give you that much money, um, but we'll give you enough to do like you know a quarter of the neighborhood at a time." And so the rehabbers like, "Okay," and so there's this big debate right about what's going to be the part of the neighborhood that gets included in what's called Project One. Um, and DePaul really wants to be included because uh, you know, everybody wants to be in because that's not clear when they'll get the next batch of money. It's not clear how long it'll take. DePaul's not in it. They cut them out. Um, it basically only includes the Old Town Triangle and the areas right around there. Um, and so that, to me, was a big sign that, like, okay, DePaul is invested in this, right? They, they contribute money to these organizations. They're obviously very interested in, in what's going on and supportive of it. On the other hand, they're not driving the bus because if they were, they would have gotten that money yeah. first, right? Um, I do think later on, right, they do end up, you know, expanding their campus quite a bit and uh, taking advantage of the sort of later periods of urban renewal to do that, right? So they do, they are sort of implicated in a lot of sort of direct displacement later on. And they're, you know, interestingly, they're, they're a target of um, organizing, especially by um, the, the Young Lords and the groups that they work with. So in 1969, the Young Lords with some of their sort of allies occupy, it's actually not technically DePaul, it's the McCormick Theological Seminary, although it's now part of DePaul. Um, they occupy a building and barricade themselves inside and demand, among other things, they demand a whole bunch of money um, that they later use to hire an architect and create that plan where they're gonna they're gonna build affordable housing. So you know they are in some in some ways you know the resources of those institutions are recognized as an opportunity for sort of leverage by the more radical organizers towards the end. But I, yeah, it was surprising to me the extent to which it did not seem like DePaul was actually sort of you know, driving the bus of rehabbing um, from the beginning. So now another question I have is, do you have examples of just like, can neighborhoods actually be revitalized without being gentrified? Like, like you know, neighborhoods need grocery stores. So, yeah. you know, neighborhoods need, I, I, I love art. I'm an artist. So neighborhoods <laughs> need art galleries or spaces to make art, community art together and, and to create community murals. And so, is this possible and like what conditions are sort of necessary if possible? On the one hand, it's hard to talk about it because it's like, uh, you know, Lincoln Park didn't 
work out from a sort of equity perspective, right? Um, and so it's, you know, there's not a lot of great lessons to be taken from that in, in some ways, right? Uh, I think that where I've sort of come to on this is that it can't, it, it can't be about a particular neighborhood. This is about sort of citywide, uh, maybe even metropolitan area-wide uh, dynamics um, that lead to these sort of polarizations um, between sort of hyper-invested hyper neighborhoods and extremely disinvested neighborhoods. Um, you know, one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, Lincoln Park, the evolution of Lincoln Park into a, a wealthy white neighborhood in the 50s and 60s and the sort of simultaneous um, transformation of a lot of South and West Side neighborhoods into segregated black and disinvested areas are, are not like separate things. It's not like a tale of two cities. They happened because of each other. You know, people in Lincoln Park were sort of, you know, barricading themselves um, because they saw what was happening in the rest of the city and what was being done to the rest of the city, right? And they said, okay, we're carving out a space for ourselves where that's not going to be a problem, that kind of disinvestment and sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, that kind of lack of privilege, right, where it was not going to be an issue where we live. Um, and then, you know, they having sort of had some success in that, right, every new person who came to the Chicago, whether it was from the suburbs or from, you know, another city, right, was sort of faced with this situation in which, okay, you can pay a bunch of money to, to bid yourself into this sort of green zone, or you can save a bunch of money and live in areas that don't have competent public services that where, you know, public safety, grocery stores, et cetera, down the line, right, is not taken for granted. Um, and, you know, people with means, many of them are willing to pay whatever they take, whatever they want, or rather whatever they can to be on the right side of that divide. And I think it's the exact same dynamic now. If you, if you invest across the city, if every neighborhood has a, you know, certain basic standards of quality of life and amenities and public services, then I think you can take the edge off of that, that dynamic. But I think that's the only way we get there. I don't think, I don't think you can address it one neighborhood at a time. I, I want, I'm wondering, right, as someone who, who is organizing, particularly young people who, some of which right, are still living with their family, some of which are not, most are under the age of being able to vote, right, um, are often seen as a part of the problem just by their existence, being young and black. I'm wondering if you can speak to, like, what people in, engaged in that work, what organizers, why they should read this book and what you hope they take away. I'll quickly say, right, Washington Park, for example, the Veterans Center was one of the few services offered um, for folks in the community particularly homeless vets, uh, providing free meals. And, you know, we're dealing with the Obama Center. We had the Olympic bid in the neighborhood. And so there's a lot going on right now in this area. And there's uh, the, the after um, the Washington Park Olympic bid was made, the Veterans Center started to get all uh, more and more inspections. Um, and we're getting slapped with a huge, way more uh, zone violations than they had ever had to deal with that were too expensive for them to repair. And so two years later, they had to shut down and move move uh, much further south, um, and um, and now it's it's private apartments. Um, and so th like that's just an example, right, of what's going on. The University of Chicago has bought up most of, of King Drive and Garfield Boulevard in the neighborhood. Um, and so there's a lot happening, and I, I think I'm so excited to hear about what the Young Lords did, and it seems like the emphasis is on affordable housing. One of, the, I think, the biggest differences, right, between the 1960s and now is there was, is, is urban renewal, right? And the fact that there were these 
you know, you could go to a meeting where a group of public officials had to listen to your comments. Um, and those, you know, those officials were responsible for voting on the fate of, you know, hundreds or even thousands of homes, whether they would be demolished or not, right? And so you had this, these really powerful, um, just, you know, single groups of decision makers that you could go and lobby. Gentrification now, right, you know, outside of the University of Chicago context is much more diffuse, right? It's driven by thousands and thousands of different decisions, by tens of thousands of different individuals, um, most of whom are not publicly accountable to anybody uh, except for their sort of conscience and their uh, and their mortgage broker. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that poses a much bigger challenge. And I think that's why, right, you didn't see the same kind of, of concerted organizing um, pre pre-urban renewal in Lincoln Park. I think the way that the Young Lords realized what their resources were, and that many of the resources were just like their physical presence, um, and the way that they used their physical presence to sort of demand the attention of stake of, of you know the rehabbers of, of urban renewal officials, turned out to be really powerful. Um, and it was you know powerful both in getting their voices heard. Um, it was powerful in convincing a lot of people that they had the moral authority and the rehabbers didn't. Um, it was also powerful in creating enemies um, and enemies that, you know, eventually would, you know, be successful in running them out of the neighborhood. Um, and so, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not an organizer um, and, and I would be, I would love to hear an organizer's view on this as kind of like a case study of what people who, you know, don't have a lot of resources in terms of you know money or, or connections or whatever, um, you know how they how they forced themselves onto the agenda and made a lot of progress um, more than you know any other group I think, um, but but still ultimately sort of came up short. I would love to hear that that perspective. Wow, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm I'm really glad we were able to talk about this because I think a lot of times, I was telling Paige earlier before you got here that we don't really talk about gentrification. What does it look like historically and currently? And we sort of scoot around this definition of like, well, it's complicated, right? And I don't know, I think this conversation is just really important to have and to continue having as organizers, especially, you know, working around um, specifically like anti-police violence in Chicago and, and wanting to see, you know, Chicago without police and wanting to see Chicago without prisons. And I think it's important to look at this history of our communities and our neighborhoods. When do they find money for certain neighborhoods versus when they don't have any money and they're broke, right? I think all of that sort of history and knowledge is super critical. So thank you so much for like writing this book and for coming to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. Also, e-viewing like gave you like a <laughs> raving review that I just like want to read because e-viewing was on our show. Um, what did she talk about? The Underground Railroad um, by um, Colson Whitehead. But Eve Ewing says, when it comes to matters of place, policy, and equity in Chicago, Daniel K. Hertz is one of the most important and incisive commentators we've got. That's a <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> I want her to say that about generous. me. Um, his careful and detailed analysis of how urban planning and the built environment can play an active role in envisioning a more just city are a necessary intervention for our times. He writes with curiosity, courage, and heart about the skeletal structures that make cities what they are, architecture, transportation systems, and mun municipal finances. These elements of urban life are easily overlooked, and they are also vitally important to consider closely if we have any hope of building a better place to live. 
She basically said what I just said, like way more eloquently, but like that's <laughs> what I was getting at. Um, so again, thank you so much. The name of the book is called The Battle of Lincoln Park. You can get it. Where can you get it in Chicago? I'm sure Women and Children First well, carry it. Women and Children First okay. carries it. Um, you should be able to get it at Seminary, um, City Lit. It's, it should be, most, most of the independent booksellers should have it. Amazing. And like we do with every guest, we close each episode with you reading a favorite quote or passage um, from the book. So in this case, something that you wrote. Yeah, so this is just, um, this is a... a, a, a couple sentences that's sort of talking about um, the rehabbers as they're sort of contemplating the beginning of their urban renewal program. True conservation necessarily requires not only the rehabilitation of structures, one LPCA publication said in 1956, but the rehabilitation rather than the elimination of social groups. Rehabbers expressed great concern about the threat of displacement by urban renewal. Quote, one of the great mistakes in Lake Meadows in Bronzeville, an LPCA newsletter wrote after the city council certification, was that a large area was wrecked without considering where the people who lived there were going. To make the same mistake in Lincoln Park, it concluded, would be, quote, inexcusable. This is Chicago. This is Chicago. Holy, this is Chicago. Illinois. This is Chicago. This is Chicago.